Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. It's true. Hi there. Welcome into Downtown, the podcast. I am the aforementioned Rich Kimball. That's Carrie Haskell. And we are brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Welcome into episode number 125 of the podcast. And just one guest on the program this week because we had a lengthy conversation recently with, uh, well, legend in the music business and, and performing in general. As a lighting designer, he is a Tony Award nominee. He has worked with everybody seemingly in the music business. Designs for places like Woodstock, Monterey Pop Festival, Newport Folk Festival. Worked with Dylan, the Rolling Stones. Did the lighting for the Rumble in the Jungle, Ali Foreman, and the concert that went with it back in 1974. Two different Summer Olympic Games and much, much more in the lengthy career of Chipmunk, who we had a chance to talk with from his home in Australia. So grateful to you for making some time for us today. Oh, don't be ridiculous. More than pleased. Thank you. So much to talk about with you, but I, I thought uh, the beginning seems like a logical place to start. And, and I want to talk about uh, your mother and how she introduced you to live theater and Broadway shows. But as I understand, she wrote a note saying that you, you had to go to New York for medical reasons every week. Uh, no, uh, the first the first Wednesday of every month. Ah. That way she should, she could catch two shows, which were her passion, <laughs> musical comedy. That's wonderful, and uh, and I just I I just watched all of this, um, you know, magnificent sunsets and sunrises and um, and brilliant uh, costumes and vocals, uh, and started wondering how do I how do I fit how do I how do I deal with my music rather than this? It it wasn't uh, it wasn't discarding musical comedy because it's neat, but uh, I just wondered how do you how do you deal with this folk music trend, because you can't do it like this. What was it about seeing those Broadway shows that, that, that drew you not to not to acting or, or composing or anything like that, but to telling a story with light? Um, well, I've, my my light is 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 really far less um, uh, entangled than, uh, than than a than a Broadway show. I, I did. Uh, I've done two Broadway shows. Got. Um, uh, a Tony nomination for each one for uh, Rocky Horror and one for Bette Midler. And um, my show was at, my my last show with Bette Midler for at, at, in Pasadena was um, uh, 920 instruments. Wow! So I got everything in that water. <laughs> <laughs> there was no way she could get away. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell the story of of how you became involved with? Uh, Charlie Altman and, and his company as, as a very young man. Yeah, well, um, Abe Fader and Jeannie Rosenthal were corralled one evening uh, by my mother, who was a very chatty person and had <laughs> had no boundaries. And uh, they said to me, you know, what you really should do is you should contact Charlie Altman in, um, in Yonkers. And Subsequently, subsequently, uh, Mum gave me two hundred fifty bucks and said, "Okay, don't bother trying to make your classes on Thursday. Go to Yonkers and start pounding on garage doors." Because the nice part about it is, telephone books in that age uh, had also the address. Right. So the third garage door I banged on, Charlie was there, and I said, "Hi, uh, I want to uh, I want to work on the benches because I want to learn more about." the instrument and what I can get out of it and why it's uh, and why it does what it does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, okay. Jelly's last follow spots, the nine Oh twos here. And don't forget to bend the clips over. Yes, I understand, sir. So they don't one fail. Just one frame doesn't foul the other. Uh, yeah, we got it. So I'll be back in a while. You just gel those and we'll see how we go. And, um, so he went away and came back into said, Hey, that's not bad. Uh, why don't you stay here tonight and uh, uh, come in uh, to, come in tomorrow morning and meet the guys and see what you think of the shop. And that is, I was working at the Village Gate at that time. So what um, basically the deal was all of the instruments that came back on rental, slightly bruised, battered, or 
giving up the ghost. He said, well, you know, if when you get to know all that, what you can do is you can just take a look at the parts areas, which is here and here, and you can use all those parts to rebuild or fit or, or make good again those instruments, your lighting instruments, and then you can take them to the gate. The only thing you can't do is you can't have a new lamp that you have to pay for. But <laughs> if you always use a dimmer, then you'll be able to live with the lamps that came back if they still work. <laughs> what a wonderful deal. So Arthur Lugolf got everything he needed for the gate, and uh, I started on the path. And the gate, uh, for people who don't know, that was uh, uh, Thompson and Bleeker and everybody who was anybody, uh, and, and certainly in the world of folk music, played there, and comedians and a wide range of talent. Oh, it was amazing. Uh, let me just drag it up here for a minute. <laughs> the Lachey Talent List. The, um, it was really quite amazing. It was Odetta, Josh White, Jeffrey Holder, Brock Peters, Leon Bibb, Miriam McCabe, <laughs> Belafonte Folk Singers, Ornette Coleman, Charlie Mingus, Thelonious Monk. And, you know, the, the most difficult was, was trying to measures bars uh, for Coltrane and Mingus. And... Uh, uh, who else? Uh, yeah, it was a, that was about it. And Miles, of course, uh, because the old my my traditional view of music is always you know four beats to the bar, and the solos are basically anywhere from uh, eight to sixteen to thirty-two to sixty-four bars, and then you quit. But <laughs> <laughs> there were those rules didn't apply. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to learn. I had to learn it all over again. <laughs> and you were living uh, what, in the you were living in the basement at the time. Is that right? Yeah, just uh, oh, about twenty feet away from the uh, uh, from the gate in the in the old kitchen of the Mills Hotel. And you, you met Dylan, I understand, uh, at, at at the kettle, right? Yeah, the, yeah, at the kettle of fish, and then ended up. Uh, he says, "I you got a typewriter?" I said, "Yeah." Yeah, he said, "Great." Can I use it? Yeah, yeah of course you can. So uh, he, he he really spoke, except when he had something he needed. And um, so I gave him a set of keys. And I said, well, you know, I have to, at four, four in the afternoon, I have to be in the gate uh, for either sound checks or recolor or whatever I have to do. Um, so you can come in any time. And I come back in at about one o'clock and, uh, you know, use it. It's yours. Enjoy it. And then I'd use, I, I, at the end of the, those sessions, I used to go to the wastebasket, take out all the drafts and everything, and iron them, put them in the folder. I unfortunately put that underneath the garage, or underneath the, you know, underneath the, the barn at uh, in Bridgehampton, New York, where I was with Barbara Jensen. And um, unfortunately, she sold the house before letting me know, yeah. and all of that uh, went away somehow. So that folder is missing. <laughs> How did you get together with Albert Grossman? Uh, he came up, he was often in the gate seeing what he could manage, what he could deal with. Um, and he wanted uh, uh, Joni Baez, but she was being managed by Manny Greenhill in Cambridge and really liked him. But he, he said, okay, uh, I'll put you into Newport with George Wayne and Charlie Bourgeois and the rest of them. And um, what I want you to do is make uh, make Joni look beautiful, and then I'll pounce on her. Oh, I said, okay, thank you. <laughs> and uh, so I spent about six six years with George Wayne, and then he started to count his pennies, <laughs> and uh, I moved along. <laughs> We're uh, talking with so, Chip Monk here on Downtown. You've, you've described Newport as overlit and not very sophisticated. Well, there were no follow spots, so I couldn't use my paintbrushes, uh, and um, it, it was it was difficult because you have a down center position where an individual work or a duo, then you need an area left and right of that for a slightly larger group, and you might as well take it out so that there's center, there's left center, there's right there's right center, then there's left off stage and right off stage. So there's five little areas of light in all of the colors that you use and also tied to the back, the backlight color, which is really important because in the evening, that's the only way the artist has somebody to relate to. They're lit and they're, they become whole three-dimensionally uh, because of back and front light as well as a bit of side. And um, the, uh, I forgot the point. 
that happens at this age. <laughs> well, you you've but said that come up in the, mid, in the middle of this next sentence and it'll come up again. It's like when I'm when I'm lecturing uh, or or doing a, a presentation. If I just have to remind the audience that if I you know if there's a blank in the middle of all of this, it means that I've forgotten the name. But try and remember that particular uh, area because it'll come up in the middle of the next sentence, and then you have to refer back to that because you have the answer. <laughs> That's how I deal with old age. <laughs> well, you've said that front light is your forte. Well, what do you mean by that, Chip? Um, well, it's it's a, the lighting basically is the directorial influence of the audience of what to look at now, what I've chosen as primary, and the color, the size of the follow spot, which generally is all, always bottom of bottom of the guitar to top of head, size of the iris. Um, what I'm doing is because of the I'm giving you a, a on whatever on the musician or the vocalist or something. I, I, it is brighter or more saturated color to call your attention to it because that's what I think you should be watching now, but I'll give you the rest of the band or other solos as they come up. So what I'm doing is really telling you what to look at. But uh, it's like a the pastry bag nozzle. And, okay? Want to go no, to... You don't. <laughs> you didn't understand that, right? <laughs> I uh, want to go to 1967 and, and talk about the Monterey Pop Festival. And, and apparently you, you didn't spend a lot of time with Lou Adler and John Phillips once they told you what they wanted. Yeah, he just said light it. <laughs> and by the way, stage manage it. And uh, they had offices across from the, the Riot House or the Hyatt House in Los Angeles. And um, uh, David Enderley arrived one morning with Al Cooper and said... Uh, Here's your new uh, here's your new helper. I know you need one for choosing amps and all the rest of that, and what to do with the back line, et cetera. And he's now yours, uh, so deal with it. <laughs> and then he left and left me with Cooper, and um, he worked out great. It was uh, we had a a mild argument in reference to the. Uh, the fact that we were going to be uh, moderately uh, reasonable in the change over times, that it wasn't going to be done, as Lou mentions it, as vaudeville, where you had to hurry up, get get rid of that act, put another one on immediately. We just sort of uh, lounged in the, in the time that it took and finally ended up playing recorded music in the break between. And it, uh, he was a great help, Cooper. He uh, he even got OCD mechanical by <laughs> carrying little pieces of chain in his pocket or or <laughs> small lengths of rope because when you're using when all of the Fender amps that were were, were given to us um, of which there were sixteen there were four on each cart the cart was maybe three foot by eight foot with four casters on it and four amps slightly overlapping each other uh, and. We just wheel uh, the number of carts that that held the numbers of speakers and the, and amp heads behind uh, whoever was playing and let them plug into that. And uh, of course, the, the the carts had a tendency to move, especially the drum riser, because of the action on it. And you took a short um, length of chain or a piece of rope and just tossed it around two of the casters on any of those dollies. And they didn't move, so Al had his had his rope and his chain in his pocket, and uh, it was it was a great help. Did you work with D. A. Pennybaker at all? Um, no, no, not at all, except for the fact that I, I cursed him, unfortunately, by uh, having come just arrived uh, to be picked up at uh, Los Angeles Airport by Alan Pariser, coming in from London through the from Peter Paul and Mary tour. Um, uh, at, at Monterey, I, it was this was the very long days that sometimes just overlapped each other. Uh, I asked for a Purple Heart, which in the UK was uh, an impediment, and uh, somebody gave me something else that was purple. And so Penny Baker spent about two hours uh, color correcting <laughs> such things as as, as, as uh, tune that that already said that. Uh, 
My heavens, how delightful a ballad in red. <laughs> well, that's all I could see for about two hours was red. That's the only thing that, that worked for me because I was tripping, which I don't do anymore. There were bands that didn't want to be a part of Monterey Pop, the Beach Boys among them. Did that did that damage their career? Uh, no, because we brought them back in 83 in San Diego after the Padres beat the Cubs. Uh, with a full house of 67,000 on Mother's Day, where we rolled the stage in in, a, in exactly a half an hour. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and nine speaker carts and all that sort of stuff. And uh, uh, did music after sport. And we used them a lot in the Doobies and, and the Ronstadt. And, but the Beach Boys were great in that because every, if the sound was moderately deficient because of the size of the, of the, uh, the ballpark... You knew the lyrics so well, it didn't make any difference. (laughs) (laughs) What was your experience working with Bill Graham? Uh, Confrontational. Mm. Every now and then we did did end up punching each other, but, you know, it all all came out in the wash. Um, He's brilliant, was, and um, it was great fun working with him. He was there at Monterey sourcing talent, so was Adler, and also the original promoter, who was, uh, what was his name? I have it here somewhere on it. <laughs> uh, Bernie Shapiro. So Parisa, who was the, basically the founder of the whole idea, and Lou credit, credits him very politely. He was, his family owned Lily Cup. So he, uh, so he had all the funds that he had to, had, that he wanted to use. And um, this was his dream. And uh, by the time everybody else kicked in what they could and bought the time from the Monterey, uh, the city of, and it became basically self-promoted. Um, it's uh, it's really interesting, very just very interesting indeed. It was a, it was a very strange uh, arrangement uh, to just let them deal with their themselves and the little areas that they wanted to control. Uh, when Teresa dropped me off at, at Monterey after uh, driving me up from L.A., the um, thing that was interesting was I asked the groundskeeper, do you have any ladders? Nope. <laughs> Would you like to see my drawings? Uh, okay. More to come with Chipmunk after this break and a word from our friends at Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back on Downtown, the podcast with lighting designer and Woodstock master of ceremonies, Chipmunk. Let's move to Woodstock, which, well, which moved itself from, from Wallkill to Max Yasger's farm, and that left you and Michael Lang and everybody else with, what did you have, three weeks to prepare? No, just just a little shy of two weeks. Wow. And and the roof had to be built. We, we unfortunately chose Steve Cohen's roof. And, um, uh, it, it turned out not to be load-bearing. It was so heavy that it was just capable, really, of only, of only hold, supporting itself. So uh, that meant that 750,000 watts or 750 instruments, lighting instruments, were sitting underneath the stage rusting. And all I had to, to light a feature film was 12 follow spots, which was uh, a, a bit of a chore because <laughs> the, my film my Fillmore East crew, uh, being used to a five-hour call, which constituted a, an evening, uh, didn't like eight or nine hours worth of darkness to, to work, so they they started to bail. So I I made numbers of announcements asking if the uh, if anybody had had worked a follow spot or worked in theater or has a, has a desire has a desire to, would you tell security that I've invited you, meet me under the stage during any time any act? So I would 
I announced the act and then hopped, hopped below the stage where we had all the velour and the, and the curtains that we were going to mask everything with. We're, we're now hung to give us total darkness underneath the stage. And my 13th safety lamp of the 12 follow spots, number 13 wasn't necessary. So that was the test instrument. So the cue of it all, or the, the importance of it all, is to, that carbon arcs, uh, or those follow spots at that time, uh, burned two pieces of pencil-thin carbon wrapped in copper, and they're pointed towards each other in the correct position within the lamp, which was all terri- terribly easily adjustable or taking out of adjustment. And that only gave me 41 minutes for trim. So that means that I have to start each lap maybe 10 minutes uh, up there. So one lap would, would run out of trim or the fire in the box as it basically was. It didn't have a lamp. It just had this literally a fire in the box by these two carbons burning down to zero. Point being that... Uh, Therefore, with everybody starting with a different length of trim or length of carbons, would run out of efficiency or almost turn themselves off at a prescribed time. So I'd start with the guy that started with the shortest carbons, get him re-trimmed or put new fire in the box, and move to the next guy who is going to eclipse. So it was a, it was moderately difficult, but. Uh, I managed to find enough operators by just teaching them uh, during the day underneath the stage. And you became master of ceremonies. Do you think it was in Michael Lang's plan all along to have yes. you be the MC? <laughs> I certainly do. Yeah, he's pretty bright. Uh, <laughs> except that the reason... Re- Revisiting Woodstock, as he tried to do, uh, unfortunately, just took, started to take uh, the mystery and the, the the rosettes off the cake, uh, because it really was only a cash grab. It wasn't to, to continue mm. the work, which is a shame. Uh, but he, he said at about 7 o'clock in the morning, well, uh, we've neglected to hire a follow-spot operator, and you're uh, sorry, an MC, and you're it. Uh, oh, thank you. The marvelous part about it was that I didn't know any earlier, so I wasn't trying to figure out who I was going to be or or to fabricate a persona. I, I just had to work with what I had immediately, which was <laughs> with my knees knocking together. So the, the, the confrontation started out with, okay, uh, you folks in the row are getting a little too close to the plywood wall of the, of the, of the film crew. And if you, if the, when the rest of the audience arrives, as they seem to be doing, um, you're going to be pressed up against that plywood for the next three days, you know, looking at the nuts, and uh, you're not going to have a great time. So what I'm going to ask you to do is, uh, you folks in the front, pick up all your stuff, if you don't mind. Um, I'm going to ask you to, to, uh, to step backwards. Uh, I don't suggest you turn around. I just, just back up so it doesn't appear to be an offensive move against <laughs> the people behind you. And those nice little soft uh, impressions in the, in, the, in the grass that you've made and so comfortably sit in now, you will be able to find the ones that somebody has made for you further back. So I'm going to count you, count you uh, backwards and ask you to move back, uh, you know, uh, oh, just a, maybe maybe about 10 feet, 10, 20 feet. Just take big steps back, and I'll tell you, when we get to 10, you can stop. <laughs> so I, I started counting, and one, two, three. Jeez, they're, they're doing it. Maybe this isn't going to be so hard. <laughs> uh, and we got them back. 10, 15 feet, and uh, then the two stakes and the piece of clothesline, which was our barrier, was reset, and nobody ever breached it thereafter. And it was it was pretty easy dealing with them because it, it uh, unlike some of the other folks that were help, helping me do some announcements, you know, um, my my all my cues came from them. You are telling me what you need. And then I try and fix it for you. Little did so, you know that for the rest of your life, though, people would be asking you about the brown acid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't even know if there really was any. 
it, it, the the request came from a doctor from the from the medical tent, and I assumed it was real. But then, of course, the question was the the horror of what happens if you if this person who's listening to you is on a trip with perhaps brown acid. You know, what's he going to do? How is he going to? How are they going to feel? So it's. If you take guidance from the assembled and try and solve their problems or their issues, it's uh, it's, it's it gets easier because there's a rapport that's built, and they know that when you start to talk even more softly, without screaming at you, um, that there's something important for you to listen to, and it may be the solution to one of your requests. So, Chip, what what made that weekend work? Um, everybody, I think, took a peek at where they were and what was lacking and figured that there was no need for argument or, or throwing punches or, or getting too boisterous, you know. And the, the thing that worked out so wonderfully was if we had, if the turntables had broken by all the people who were on the stage all standing on that extra 18 inches so they get a better view from behind the act, if they had, if the captain has given out because we did use steel frame, we used uh, lumber, and of course, lumber casters like bolts and lumber is not strong enough to hold twenty people sitting on it when you only expected six or so of an act, and their amplifiers at center so you could turn up the turntable. Then we would have had maybe five to ten minutes of changeover time. But that meant in the 24-hour period, you'd have 16 hours of um, uh, of, of acts because of your efficiency. Right. And what are they going to do for the other eight hours? Torture the neighbors? <laughs> you know, they, we already had enough. We already had enough problems with the community. Certainly not Max, but his neighbors, of course. And uh, so, strangely enough, every now and then, all of these major concerns were. Basically taken care of all by themselves. Somebody was watching over us, and uh, that's basically how how we got along with each other. The, the whole delight of Woodstock was the fact that that many people uh, who didn't know each other for all intents and purposes got along quite well, and it was the second largest community in New York State for that uh, weekend. And you know the freeways closed, so everybody had to use a heli- had use helicopters to get in and out. So uh, it was it turned out to be uh, quite a reunion or a union of people, and uh, they shared all sorts of thoughts and items. And uh, the problem was that there was nobody uh, or there was no new nucleus that could take all of that those good vibes, so to speak, and uh, and carry them on to do something or get something done with it, with the strength that they had, in, in fact, created. That's, so it just sort of, uh, it just fell to Michael to try and produce more of them. And unfortunately, every time it, it happened, it got less effective and less desire, least desirable. Well, including later that year with the Stones at Altamont, and, and that was, I guess, in many ways, the uh, dark side of what we saw at Woodstock. Well, that just happens when, when you have 300,000 people and you have no facilities for them, no food, no drink, no nothing, right? And then Rock Scully, Emma Drogan, and... Uh, Sam Cutler, who was road management at that time for the Stones, uh, decided that the Hells Angels, because of their work in Candlestick Park, which was probably pretty good with the dead, uh, they we didn't mesh too well. Uh, had I known uh, that there was going to be that many people and was that much pressure towards a, a lower stage about, oh, it was maybe 400 high, which would have been four feet. Um, difficult. Um, the um, we couldn't. We're not. We were not using the follow spots because the union labor that was required to operate them didn't show up because they knew they had heard all about the concerns of just on the radio. So, uh, and it was a blessing. Here's one of the one of these blessings that usually follow us. If we had used front light follow spots. Uh, on the act, then what would have happened would have been the act wouldn't have been able to protect themselves or see anything being thrown at them. Right. 
So all we had was backlight and then lots of people standing very close to the front of the stage, if not the, the angels on the stage. They were reflecting just enough for Albert and uh, Albert Maisel's uh, to film Give Me Shelter. So they, we, with the 48,000 watts of backlight we had in white, it bounced off those people and gave Albert and uh, his brother the uh, the exposure that they needed. So the, everything has a habit of, of working out. But uh, very early in the morning uh, after that concert, uh, I saw the stage rug sitting on a leaning on the roof to the end of the tailgate. And that rug belonged to production, and I would imagine that I would have been charged for it had it not been returned. Um, and uh, also in that truck was this, uh, a, a chopper, on a motorcycle on either side. So as the truck started to pull out, I just grabbed the end of the rug and assumed that it would just pull off the uh, off its position in the in the pick on the pickup. Um, unfortunately, it did, and one of the choppers came out with it, and. Um, I had I managed to stay reasonably uh, protected and calm for 15 minutes while talking to a, a number of the angels in their distress about a bike being pulled off of the uh, the truck, and then somebody got me with a loaded pool cue, and that that uh, four teeth were missing. Mm. And no, no time to go to the dentist because I had to find out. I, I found out where Sonny Barger lived, and I uh, went got a case of champagne and a case of brandy and went prepared to buy the rug back and got it back. <laughs> We're talking with Chip Monk here on downtown. Uh, how, how did you come to break Mick Jagger's finger? I threw a, I threw a small Xerox machine at him. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, he got a little, he got a little out of hand, but uh, he, he, he then was polite enough as to keep his distance. <laughs> and because what I wanted to do with the group was just, uh, well, essentially build a brand, which we did successfully. But in, uh, in, in 69, the first tour of the U.S. that they'd done since 66, I, I, I went to Boston and saw them in from New York when I was working at the gate in 66. And, uh, it was pretty, they were pretty rough. They did uh, maybe 35, 45 minutes, no encore. And as Charlie Watts said politely, maybe it was his youth, their youthful ex exuberance, or that um, uh, uh, they were just too damn selfish to want to do anything else other than get the card, get the, collect the money, and get home. So, yeah, well, it's um, Charlie's in extremely intelligent and did most of the artwork on album covers and everything else uh, in, in the very beginnings with a little bit of Andrew Ola. Um, it's just, uh, it's really hard to, to reach his ladyship unless you have, uh, what you've got to do is you've got to meet Jagger, uh, whether summoned or your request to have a meeting of sorts. Um in the first maybe 30 seconds, you have to figure out which of the seven personalities you're speaking to. And otherwise, you don't have the right pin configuration, and you'll be discharged, or he'll just walk out to go something to something else. So um, it, it, it was difficult. Chip, did you, find it, it was, did you find it useful and maybe even essential to distance yourselves from some of these big stars to do the job you had to do? Um, yes, uh, they don't need a friend, uh, because they've got all these people that are hounding them anyway. I, I, I'm usually distant, but you know, there are, there are times that, uh, I need something to make the, the unit work, or there's something that's being, that's being left undone that isn't been attended to. And, you know, therefore you have to present it to somebody. And Charlie gets tired, basically, of, of being the person that has to carry your message to his ladyship. Let's talk about 1974 and uh, the adventure in Zaire, putting together the, uh, the three-day festival as part of Ali Foreman and the Rumble in the Jungle. How did that all come together? Um, well, there's a, there was a beer company that, that wanted to sell their product as an exclusive in Zaire. So they decided that the best thing to do was to see if they could corral um, Bali to, to, to fight in Zaire. And, um, the only problem was that Mobutu, the premier or dictator, um, decided that the lighting and the sound system was a grand idea and he wanted to keep it. 
So um, we left in a hurry and left the collection of that back to Bill McManus, who was doing the lighting at that uh, and the staging, which was pretty good. Um, and um, uh, we we took the raft from the one of the 727s or the, that um, that carried the equipment in and rode across the river uh, and uh, tried to find a uh, a car in Leopoldville and dragged to Nairobi, drive to Nairobi. <laughs> it was just a time to get out of there. The, I, I never had anything to do with um, basically the fight because of the, the the cut on Foreman's eye. Unfortunately, that had, had to be with, held in about two weeks later than our right. our stage introduction. Um, it's uh, so I never had the pleasure of meeting anybody, except that I was sent out or told to, or what I wanted to do really was my fault is to is to go out and see all the local bands that were going to be. Uh, being presented on on the, on those three evenings, and uh, or days and evenings, and um, because what I wanted to do is draw or chart precisely how they set up, and, uh, so that it could be immediately recreated for them uh, in the stadium. It it was only courtesy because um, um, if they had exactly what they normally used and played with subject to bringing their own special instruments, then they might be able to just relax and deal with uh, all of the things at hand. And um, the children in Zaire, when they want something from you, they were, they're courteous enough enough to grab you. Um, they they dab you with a tissue. Um, and if you have maybe 15 of these small people uh, dabbing you with a tissue, looking for whatever you have in your pocket... <laughs> at one of the at one of the uh, the time to measure up and draw this act occasions, I was dragged off into the bush by the, by a group of maybe twelve or fourteen of these young people wanting to uh, to uh, have everything that I might have had in my pocket, which I gave them, and and I was rescued wow. <laughs> by by the band saying, "Oh dear, no, we should have told you about that," <laughs> but all having a good laugh. <laughs> That was very spirited. Most of the stuff that I do is has all of these funny little stories attached to it, because I have this <laughs> this this gnawing need to to get done what I want to see, and it it's, it it doesn't always uh, lay well with with the group that I'm about ready to force through the, this pastry bag nozzle. <laughs> you worked for five years with with Beth Midler. How how was she to work with? Um, thank God for Camille, my wife, who is Australian, that we met on on the uh, the last leg of the world tour in Australia. That was brilliant. But Camille took care of her and played all the games that I didn't want to have to play because I was really uh, it was a, a a very involved show and terribly well choreographed and timed by Bet, who never misses a mark. It's um, so Camille took care of Beth basically and occupied her when she needed when she wasn't needing to speak to somebody and tell them what to do, and they were they would bounce up and down on the beds in their PJs and have a lovely time and do girl things and uh, and Camille basically took took <laughs> took all the hard ass difficulty that I was going to have with, with Beth if we confronted each other and um, saved me from that. She was brilliant, right? And really, and quite amazing, amazing showman. Yeah, you worked on two Summer Olympics of the '84 Olympics in Los Angeles. Was that with Peter Uberoff? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, L.A. was pretty easy, and the pianos at the, in, in in L.A. at the stadium and all that sort of stuff. It was fun. I, I was uh, um, I didn't like it. Uh, I just basically ended up stage managing portions of it. Um, the uh, the Olympics here in Australia with uh, Rick Rick Birch was uh, uh, I I did numerous drawings and everything for him and then they just went away again which was pleasing because Rick was, was very difficult to deal with so the, my Olympic credits were more with Mike Brown grandstands and staging which I ended up with Camille and I both ended up there for about two or three years um, the um, 
mostly the scaffolding and all the decoration and all the bleachers and all the seating and all that sort of stuff that Mike Brown, in fact, could offer. I was basically in charge of that. So it, the the general activities of the of the of, on, of both of those uh, gatherings were I didn't have a great deal to do with except as a sub sub or subcontractor. What's been the the biggest change you've seen in the injury uh, in the industry, whether it's the the technology the injury, or the injury? Yes. Right, you know, Freudian <laughs> slip there. Uh, is it technology? Is is it better now? Can you do more with less, or uh, was there something to be said for ingenuity and creativity back in the in the old days? Um, no, I still I still want to be able to talk with with a follow spot operator of which I use as many as up to twelve very comfortably. Um, I got broken by Paul Anka at Caesars, where he would add another follow spot every night to see when I would choke. But um, what was the question? <laughs> is is technology making the job easier or more uh, challenging for lighting directors? Um, I'm not really very pleased with it because the, the MA board from Light Power in Germany it has the ability to, to program follow spots for their panning left and right, for their tilt up and down, for color change, etc. All of that can be motorized now so you don't have to have the expensive portion, which is the operators who work on a five-hour call and uh, are expensive, especially if you go overtime. And... The um, that's really disappointing. Plus the fact that LED is so prominent nowadays. I have to, if I were to do something, which I did, which I really would like to do with Cameron Crowe and the and uh, the Old Grove Theater, and his um, uh, his his now recreation and with an effort to get to Broadway on with the with the film almost uh, famous. But I doubt that's going to happen. We, we talked to Jim Miller recently. He did a, a five-part podcast with Cameron and the whole cast and everybody involved in the making of the film Almost Famous. And, and, and he told the interesting story that uh, Peter Frampton had said to Cameron for years, you can't make a good rock and roll movie. It's not possible. People have tried it. It doesn't exist. And, and Cameron said to him, well, that's why you're here, to, to capture some of that realism and make it work. And, and they certainly did for the film, but I'm curious how that might translate to the stage I don't think it's going to uh, because of the innuance and and the emphatic and the, the, the what the face has to say in, with the eyes and the, and and all of that brilliance that can be seen in the close-up of the, uh, of two people relating to each other in film I don't think it's going to be possible I don't think it's going to read past the fifth row unless they have drop in uh, video enlargement screens so that you can see all this carefully. Uh, yeah, I don't think it, uh, well, I, I haven't gotten to Cameron. I've, I've broadcast my need for his email because his, uh, my, our great working with each other numbers of years ago, his, he's changed for obvious reasons, his email. So I'm waiting to see if I can throw my hat in the ring. But his choice of lighting designer is uh, she's, uh, she's a six uh, uh, Tony nominee, or actually uh, winner, and did Springsteen the one man show, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And so I imagine that she's probably, uh, probably very well uh, oriented because I'm I'm great with the band, but when you get with numerous people, having watched Ham Hamilton very carefully, there's a whole new trick mm. to trying to be able to pull somebody out of that grouping, making them special, and then drop them back into the grouping or the, or the, the, uh, the, the, the melee that you, it's just, I, I think it's going to be a little out of my, my league at the moment. But the LED instruments are, are, I have to, I have to find out how, how well they work because I'm, I'm, Unfortunately, just very old school with equipment. I, I use the hottest and the brightest I can find, and not a great deal of it. But I'm, I would have to use something very. I'd have to change my whole course of my whole work ethic and to deal with um, uh, a 
yes, they're blocked, but I, they're almost in free movement. There's nothing that that you could rely on in, in a in a group scene mm. because there has they have to they have to be able to to carry the plot any any way they so choose, which is never the same. Yeah, I, I work with I work with high school actors, and, and we have a fairly new theater, <laughs> and we put in LED lights uh, over my objection at the time, and and I just I miss I miss gels, I miss the simplicity, but also the control that you had when everything was manual. Yes, plus the fact is, well, manual with mem- memory is great. A yes. memory board is essential. But um, no, it's 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 unpleasant uh, because the colors that the that the the um, intelligent lighting intelligent lamps use is not the same saturate of, of uh, saturation of color nor the tone of the color that I like. That's why I mix mix gels. I'm often using two different two assisting colors in the mm. same frame, like. The green is too green, so I add a lavender to it. So it's an 877, 841, which 77 being green, 841 being what you would call bastard amber or uh, light lavender. Uh, and I, I I like my colors. Mm. <laughs> I've settled on them finally. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to use what they think is... Right. Uh, an appropriate color boom in an, in an intelligent inter- instrument. The only thing I'd like to do is I'd like to I'd like to have individual lamps being able to move mm. uh, almost apparently f- freestyle on tracks individually and have a homing device on everybody's shoulder that gives that group of lamps that focus regardless of where those lamps have self-moved to or where that person has traveled. Having used that, those bugs previously with Neil Diamond was a very <laughs> hazardous because the little bug that receives and sends out the information of where that person is from its position on his shoulder it was thought to be a beetle or something, and somebody just before one show where where Marilyn Lowy was lighting it slapped it hard, oh, killed the oh. beetle, and <laughs> and destroyed the bug. So oh. she had to do manual manual or or verbal cueing of his whole show, which she had not done for quite some time because it all was automated. <laughs> so it, it, you lose you lose a great deal without that personal touch to be able to twist things to follow the. Strange movements of an act, which are which are whether or not they're in, they're in this position, or it's just uh, part of this part of the screening that they do that changes it every evening. Yeah, I don't think I don't think you can program follow spots. I just I do, it, because the boards have a tendency to go down sooner or later, right? You know, and if if you've got follow spots connected to them to to the board and it goes down and it's usual every now and then, uh, how are you going to? You have to have some light available to to allow you to get you get you through the telephone repair back to Germany and they, they operate 24 seven. So they will actually service the, 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 the hazard of having lost program or lost a, an operative portion of that board on the, on, on telephone with you. You've worked with, with so many talented performers through the years, but w- when you're doing your work, creating your art, are you able to appreciate what they're doing in the moment or, or does that come a little bit later? No, and you can in the moment. I mean, if if you, uh, as much as I dislike him, the uh, Neil Young in the middle of hurricane, it, you cannot <laughs> not you cannot not be attacked. Right? It's the you know there is brilliance every now and then um, that you have to treat in the fashion that you want to see it, but be able to be resilient and mobile in order to change it instantly. So it's, it's great fun if you got if you if you actually got hung what you need to work with, you should be able to handle anything even outboard of your usual frame of reference. Could you have imagined as a young man in, in Wellesley, Mass, that uh, you would have these incredible adventures in your life, or was that the plan all along? 
No, no, no. I, you know, at eight years old, I was still swallowing the screws from the Meccano set, asking for more. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've always wanted to just build stuff, you know. And and uh, and nicely enough, um, the, the the things that I, I wake up with in the morning uh, when the design is almost complete um, is exactly what I want to build. And it, it doesn't come from I, – I don't go to shows. Uh, and that's not because I'll, I'll be bored or it, it's different or I don't want to be. Uh, the problem is that you, as a designer or somebody working uh, in, a, in a certain trade, if you go and watch other people doing the same sort of work, you'll steal. Mm. And I just don't think that's fair. Uh, you know, I don't want to. I, I would have to say, "Oh, wow, that's 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 good," but I'd have to try and forget it because otherwise, I'm, I'm stealing his cream or her cream. Absolutely. Well, Chip, it has been a, an absolute delight to speak with you. Thank you so much for making oh, some time with us. Oh, you're very thoughtful. It's my pleasure. You're helping me as well. Well, I'm glad you to hear take that. Take good care. And you too. Anytime you want, give me a holler. That sounds wonderful. Stay safe and be well. Thank you, Rich. We out. That had so many little nuggets of goodness in it, Carrie, but I think we both agree that his, his uh, comments about Mick Jagger might have been our favorite moments with Chipmunk. Uh, yes. <laughs> As it was happening, that, that one took me aback a little bit. Uh, the, the whole story of his tumultuous relationship with, with Mick Jagger. Yes. Um, getting a pool cue in the mouth. At Altamont, trying yeah. to get a rug back that the Hells Angels were trying to steal. And all the way back to Dylan writing one of his first big songs, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, on, on Chip's typewriter in his Greenwich Village apartment. Another one of those guys that we've had on that is, has literally seen it all through the years. A whole lot of fun talking with the legendary Chip Monk here on Downtown, the podcast. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Thanks for joining us, as always, for Carrie Haskell. I'm Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time on Downtown.